As we've discussed before here on the Art of Range, forage production on rangelands can vary quite a bit from year to year. It can vary from more than double to less than half of a long-term average for much of the West. While this variability, and not just aridity, is part of what defines rangelands, satellite-derived production data show greater variability after about the year 2000. This year-to-year fluctuation has significant implications for ranchers. If you're going into a year with 50% of average production, you need to respond with some management adjustment. That might be culling cows, shortening the grazing period, early weaning, delayed turnout, a reduced stocking rate, etc. If you're able to anticipate an increase in forage production, it might be a good gamble to exercise a different kind of flexibility. It might be staying in a range pasture a little longer. It might be keeping the same grazing period but increasing how many animals go in or letting a traditional stocking rate serve as a temporarily light stocking rate in order to effectively provide a year with a little rest where not all plants get grazed or they're just grazed more lightly than usual. Researchers have been working on ways to one, measure forage production using satellite data, and two, predict whether a given year will yield more or less than the average based on several factors, not just precipitation. My guest today, Matt Reeves, has spent his career swimming in the deep end of the decision support tool pool. He will reference a number of data products that are currently available to the public, which we will link to in the show notes. Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Matt Reeves. Matt Reeves works for the Forest Service out of Missoula, Montana, and does work on modeling. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tip. And I do work in Missoula. I work with the Rocky Mountain Research Station, which is the research arm of the Forest Service. Matt, how did you get into that that kind of work? Well, I got into that kind of work. I started, um, I graduated from Washington State University as a, a uh, in, in rangeland management and went on to get a, a master's and then a my PhD uh, ended up in in Missoula, where I presently am, and the reason I gravitated towards that work is I found it very interesting that um, we could use satellites and weather information to tell us something about the earth and the vegetation that you might not be able to see from the ground level. Mm-hmm. So your PhD work was on vegetation modeling? Yeah, my PhD work was primarily eastern Montana and Little Missouri National Grasslands, and what I did there was develop productivity models that would enable us to understand the impact of weather on uh, forage bases in those areas. But those models can easily be and have been transformed for the rest of the United States as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Over the last, I guess I'd say, 25 years, it seems like there's been an increasing recognition of the extent to which variation from year to year in 
precipitation amount and timing really drives both forage production and, I guess, more punctuated changes in, in plant communities around the West. And some would argue, uh, like Nathan Sayre did in his book, Politics of Scale, uh, The History of Rangeland Science, that that, that interannual variability and unpredictability has probably always characterized Western rangelands and is one of the reasons why they're a little bit more difficult to apply uh, fixed management recommendations to. Is that borne out in, in what you found with looking at historical information and trying to model it for the future? Yeah, absolutely. One of the main things, though, that I'd, I'd caution against uh, overgeneralization in that, yes, uh, variability has always been in the system, but I think we've seen more variability entering the system in the last two decades, and we have, I think, quite a bit of, of evidence to suggest that in some of the tools we're going to be looking at here pretty quickly mm -hmm. uh, on this podcast. Um, we've discovered that, in fact, I think variability is increasing uh, in, in some of our major rangeland areas, and I don't know what the causes of that might be. I have some guesses, but uh, variability has always been there, but it may be increasing. Right, right. Uh, so what you guys have been trying to do is to tie, I guess, put together models of both vegetation productivity that are measuring in real time and combine that with climate prediction models so that we could try to give a, um, a forecast, you know, within a management scale time frame that people could respond to who have to make a living making decisions on the ground. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And the way I view all of these tools is I, it seems to me that range management is as much of an art as a science. And I liken it to being, you know, if you're a manager or a producer, it's almost like you're, you are an, an attorney. You're trying to make your case for, for some choice that's been made and you need all the evidence uh, to make those decisions on your side. And so I think what we're trying to provide here is some tools and ideas that help tip the scale in your favor. And we do offer the, the, uh, the first of those tools that you mentioned is um, our rangeland production monitoring service, which has two components. The first would be the retrospective, in other words, the where have we been uh, component. And the other component is the in-season uh, projections of expected forage yields. And the first of those, which is the retrospective aspect, uh, relies on satellite information. And we've taken that satellite data um, and calibrated it to annual production across 600 plus million acres of rangelands in the United States. We can do that now because of the, the large quantity of satellite information mm -hmm. that we get. In some cases, we have daily information in fact, uh, to, to include. So that's the retrospective piece. And like I said, there's the, the idea of making projections. This is available for the Northern region. So that'd be of the forest service. So that would be, you know, North Idaho, all of Montana, part of South Dakota, part of North Dakota. And that projection system uses real time information, including weather and also biweekly satellite information we take that, that information and make projections about expected forage yields. We don't use forecast information as some of the other systems that we're going to talk about. For example, the GrassCast. Mm. 
the brass cast uses um, you know, meteorological forecasts, say for example, yeah, it's going to be warmer and wetter in a month than it is today. We don't take that philosophy. Instead, what we do is we look at 35 plus years of observations and we use the real-time information to ask the question, when we have been where we are right now in the past, where did we end up? Mm -hmm. Which is a very different question than saying, what's the weather going to be like in a month or two? And that's, that's our philosophy is using a backward looking approach to model the future. Yeah. That, I've often said that it would be easy to be a meteorologist because you can be wrong more than half the time and you still get to keep your job. It looks like the objective to, with this is to look in the past and, and apply, apply. I realize that forecasters, meteorologists do that when they make forecasts. I do realize that, but, uh, Looks like the idea with this is to be is to be right more than half the time based on what has happened before. Well, that's right. And the way that you do that is you look through all of our observations over the last 30 or 40 years. For example, we know that cheatgrass dominated rangelands can respond very positively to wintertime or fall moisture in the previous year, and that can affect the growing season conditions. Well, you'd want to incorporate that in your model uh, because if you were just using the forecast to inform that model, it would be naive to antecedent conditions, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the, in the near, in the near past. And we don't want to get too technical. I realize this really isn't a, a technical forum, but the way we do that is a, a data mining exercise. So it's a machine learning approach where the computer can tease apart those relationships between annual production, satellite information and meteorological observations in the past to project into the future. And importantly, uh, the projection work that we offer, we also include a 95% prediction interval. So we offer the user or the consumer of this product our, our measure of error. Mm -hmm. And of course, as you might imagine, early in the year, the error is usually larger than as we get closer to the future. But I can tell you that, for example, in 2017, we had the flash drought and in much of eastern Montana, particularly in the northeastern corner, uh, we had called it by about May 5th, suggesting that um, this was going to be a pretty epically bad year. And that may not be enough time to for a lot of people to act on, but considering much of that country has a peak usually sees a peak about the 4th to through the 8th of July, mm -hmm. it does give you a little bit of time to think about how you're going to react. Um, but the, the drop, each bi-weekly period that we did that projection, it kept going down. I had not seen that um, over the past 35 years. We'd not seen that kind of behavior in the model. Mm -hmm. About 10 years ago, I was visiting with some guys at the Noble Foundation, and this was just after they had the massive drought in the in the south southern plains there and they said that drought was predicted by every meteorologist every climate modeler under the sun everybody said this is going to happen there's really no question about it and and there were some people who took that advice you know who culled heavily who destocked some people you know took uh, harlan hughes was a north dakota state university livestock economist and one of his 
one of his recommendations was under certain circumstances when the market's high and you've got bad conditions coming, liquidate the whole herd and buy back when it comes back. That's pretty extreme, but uh, his point was people – there were some people who listened to those recommendations and responded uh, in with management action, and those people were in really good shape coming back out of the drought, either because they had what little pasture they had they could sell to the highest bidder or because they destocked enough that that their range and pasture was able to ride it out. Much of that Texas panhandle – um, you know, western Oklahoma area did experience conditions we've not seen over that 35-year record. In fact, it was probably 20%, 10 to 20% worse than anything before that uh, in terms of forage yield. And so took a big, a big cut there. Some of those areas, though, uh, did experience some, some recovery, and we can see that in the production record. For example, by 2015, uh, a lot of those areas on the southern plains had recovered in fact, exceeded pre-drought states, suggesting that maybe there was some resiliency built into the system. But mm. that isn't to say that all places came out uh, okay. In fact, some sites, some areas we see uh, do not appear to have recovered to uh, pre-drought conditions. And so I know it was a very hard time for a lot of people. You mentioned a couple of data products that are available to people. Can you go back and describe some of the applications of this that are available for people to take a look at now? Yeah, the, there are two, again, I'll remind you, there's two uh, avenues here. The one is the for, in-season forage projections that's available for the northern region, uh, which is the, the Montana, Dakotas, and part of North Idaho. And that will be most useful to people looking for um, more information to incorporate into their annual plan it's also useful for people developing risk management strategies. So if you want that added piece of information, it's just one more piece of the, the system that helps tip the scale in your favor. Um, fire and fuel managers will also benefit from this because when we combine the projection with what we've seen in the past, we'll have a much better handle on the regional fuel conditions than we presently do. And uh, I'm sure there will be other applications that uh, are derived from, from that projection product in the future as, it, as uh, we continue to provide that service. And what is the name of the projection product again? The projection product is just the second part. So the Rangeland uh, Production okay. Monitoring Service is two components. Got it. And we really don't have a, a second name. Uh, some people have suggested you'd call it a cow caster or something, but I, I don't know that I'd go that far. <laughs> um, but with the, the retrospective part of the monitoring service that tells us where we have been, it has had a lot of use. And in fact, we are using it now to update um, ecological site descriptions for uh, a lot of adjoining lands that adjoin uh, forest service allotments, for example, to, to update those sites with more, um, I think, more relevant and more contemporary estimates of forage production. Right. We've also used that information to understand something of treatment effectiveness, particularly in the Kaibab National Forest. Um, they asked if we could use that type of information to understand the abundance of forage post-treatment for a lot of their PJ and uh, a lot of the thinning that's going on right now 
on the Kaibab Plateau. PJ it, is Pinion Juniper. Pinion Juniper, that's right. Thanks for uh, catching me on that. Um, a lot of pinion and juniper thinning, some ponderosa pine thinning, and they wanted to know, can we see and detect a forage response from this mm -hmm. uh, across a lot of these areas where our limited number of range cons might not be able to visit. So I think it's an excellent way to get a handle on what's been happening across your landscape. It may be a ranch, it may be allotments in a federal um, land management scenario, it may be pastures. And in just a short bit of time using the tool, you'll be able to understand what's been happening have you been going up, down, or sideways? And I'll tell you that a lot of times what people see on the ground, they forgot what it was like, say, 20 years ago, and they don't, they don't necessarily remember how today's conditions compare to what happened 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's especially relevant with our Forest Service uh, and land management range cons, for example. That's the range conservationists that will interface with permittees seeking to use um, federal lands for grazing. Very important for those folks because a lot of times they're new to the job. There's a lot of turnover. That is a, 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 mm -hmm. a, a situation that uh, can be difficult because they don't know what's happened. And so we can use this information to get them up to speed pretty quick. Mm -hmm. What other tools are out there for farmers and ranchers? I'm thinking mostly of livestock producers uh, to be able to respond well to the precipitation and temperature anomaly we call drought? Well, one of the things that comes to mind would be the uh, National Drought Mitigation Center's Managing Drought Risk on the Ranch Handbook. Folks might want to look at that too. Great. Well, Matt, this has been useful. Matt Reeves is a, with the U.S. Forest Service out of the Rocky Mountain Research Station. Uh, Matt, again, thank you for your time. Yep, it's good to be with you. Thank you. The following audio segment is from Matt Reeves' live presentation at the Society for Range Management Conference in Minneapolis on February 11, 2019. This was in a symposium titled, New Geospatial Technologies for Monitoring Rangelands. What kind of questions can we ask now? In his presentation before a full house, Matt references graphics that he's displaying on a screen. That slideshow is available as a PDF on the show notes website. There are several ways to access the show notes. In iTunes, show notes are in the details view in the episode window. You have to tap more to see the full text of the show notes. If you are listening in the SoundCloud interface on the website, artofrange.com, you click on view track to the right of the episode title and then show more to see the whole thing. And on the main website, you can click on the big button, View Show Notes, and you will be directed to a Dropbox folder where you can download a PDF of the same information. So looking at issues that people are dealing with, one of the things that they, they have a cross-cutting theme, and that would be the need to maintain annual production. Um, you know, if our lands aren't behaving as we hope, that can, that can cause some, some headaches. And so looking at annual production can support each of these uh, challenges in different ways. And today I'm gonna talk about how we, we can meet some of those challenges with these new data and tools that the Rangeland Production Monitoring Service. And I'm gonna share some of the results of some analyses we've done um, around 
the country for different reasons and talk about how just this one simple tool can reveal a lot about your landscape. So with a good long time time series, you can tell a lot about what's been happening on the landscape and, and see what that means for a forage base. So here we are, the production monitoring service. Now there's two components here that I wanna briefly mention. The first is retrospective, which is where we've been. And that's what we use to monitor and look at trends. Are we going up, down, or sideways? And then there's in-season, near real-time forage projections starting March 1st in the growing season. But today, um, we're not gonna talk as much about the forage projection. That's a subject of something different, but it's in the Northern region. And the focus here is to ask the question, where are we headed? And most of the talks we've seen today involve machine learning. This is another one of those where we look at antecedent conditions and suggest what that may mean for uh, the near term forage situation. So answering the question, where do we think we're headed based on the information we've got? And that includes weather information and then both remote sensing um, put together in a machine learning environment. What I want to focus the rest of the time on is talk about the monitoring side. So the retrospective uh, version of this, which is built on the TM and, and MODIS, and I'll explain how this is coming about, but the TM and MODIS satellite suites from 1984 to present and then beyond. Um, it's for all coterminous U.S. range, and so it's about 660 million acres of coverage, plus or minus, and it's built on the NDVI. That's been a common theme through many of these talks, and this one's really similar that way. And it's available right now for anyone that has an interest. Um, let's dig into the methods a little bit. I told you it was the thematic mapper version, which is a 30-meter platform. Um, Scott did a good job talking about that as well. Um, and I worked with him on that project, so I was real pleased with how that turned out. But it's from 1984 to present. And in 2012, thematic mapper had some problems, you know, nationally. Um, so we filled that with, with MODIS NDVI, um, cross-calibrated to, to uh, the TM signal. And we're using maximum NDVIs to avoid this need of using growing season-long NDVI and then having to make synthetic data. Okay, so filling the holes and modeling what should have been there. So we're using a maximum. And again, it's on coterminous U.S. ranges. So how do we calibrate this into production for something like the United States? And we, we focused on the ecological site description production values of high, medium, and low. Get into that a little bit. And this is conducted for 110 different vegetation types here. So here's what we did. We took, this is the, the Servo data set with the, the production values associated with them. We've got the corresponding uh, NDVI values here for the maximum, for the average, and then for the minimum values. So this is a, a calibration way of converting our, our remote sensing information into production values, and it works pretty good. So for example, here's what we've got. You can see this is our 110 vegetation types here going down, and we have three values, the above average, average, and the below average, and a corresponding NDVI from the same time period. So it gives you a lot of points to begin to model with. Let's look at that calibration a little bit more. So here's where we're at with the calibration. And on the X is the, the NDVI on Y is the annual production. This is just from the ESDs. And if you separate out a few of these outliers where there's a couple of, of uh, points that I'll probably make later on. In either case, we've got 
R squareds of 0.8 here, 0.72 on the lower range, and then down here, we estimated the the area of no vegetation to be about 0.1 for those that have an interest in that sort of thing. So what about the validation where it's really critical? Um, this is validation data from the ARS um, in uh, near Nunn, Colorado there. Pay attention to these points for a second on the lower end. These points here had a very nice fit on the low end of production. And on the X is our observations, on the Y is the predictions. Then also take a look at the temporal. So what's going on through time in terms of validation? The secondary X here is time in years. Secondary Y is a time series of annual production of observed. And that's what's involved with right here. The solid lines are predicted. The dotted lines are the observations. So a very nice uh, coupling of that. And if we look at this cloud as a whole, we've got an R squared that's very high, except what's going on up here? Well, that's Kanza. So we looked at the Kanza data courses, tall grass situation. Any of you used NEVI, you know it's going to saturate. We didn't find any benefit using EVI for those that have an interest in that. So we couldn't get around the saturation, but I want to talk a bit more about that. This is where that saturation starts to happen, right? Right about in here, you can see it curving upwards. You see it here. Um, the good news is that's about 3,300 kilograms per hectare. Most of us working in, in the drier ranges of the United States uh, don't have that problem. So that's, I guess that's one good thing about it. We're just not that productive. So tall grass, this doesn't, our method is, is uh, as others have found, not as good as we'd like. You need some height information too, based on what other research suggests um, in those very productive regions. So let's take a look at some results here. And I want to focus on national, a lot of pasture levels, and then some ecological site, terrestrial ecological units, which is a Forest Service kind of equivalent of ecological sites. Let's start with this 2011. Some of you in the room have seen this before. Uh, and the reason I want to point to this is that epic drop, 2011, 2012. And what we see here is the percent change in ANPP compared with the 35-year mean. Well, that was a tough, tough year. And in fact, we've never seen values that low. Conversely, this is when the Missouri flooded up here. So when you take a look at the national perspective, you get some really interesting results. Let's take a look at the Kiowa Rita Blanca national grasslands right here. So here's the temporal profile of that production system. And on the X is time. On the Y is the annual production. And I want to point out a couple of things. First, our average variability there is about 30% in, in terms of interannual variability. And of course, down in here was when we saw that red. And that corresponds to this really low calf crop in 2012, lowest since 1949. Look at this difference, though. Between the bottom and the top, that's a two and a half fold difference between the minimum and maximum. So that's one cool thing about having a time series like this is you begin to derive some pretty interesting metrics about variability of landscapes. Okay, a bit more regional in flavor. What you see here is the BLM allotment situation. And you can derive metrics kind of like that Scott pointed out, interannual variability, trend through time, our average production, and it's never average. It's either above or below the average, but average production, and then the droughtiest year. Okay, walk through this a little bit with me. Cool tones represent areas with lower variability in the annual production. If I'm warm, that's higher variability. Over here, trend through time, I don't want to be red, that means I'm going down through time. 
1984 to present. Cool tones, exactly the opposite. I'm going up. We're writing a paper about what's going on here and here. And uh, if you have questions, I'll share with you some of those results. Average production, of course, red means lower. Over here, very interesting, droughtiest year. If I'm greenish or coolish, that means my droughtiest year was further in the past. And these warmer tones mean nearer in the future. This was the 1988 drought that encompassed the region when we had the big Yellowstone fire. Okay, zooming in a little bit to the allotment level, this is Kauai Canyon. They're having a bad, a bad set of years here. And I don't know why, what the cause is. We don't get into that. But using this kind of information, you can very quickly get a, a sorting of who's winning and who's losing over this time period. So Kauai Canyon here, um, what we see, again, the color represents correlation through time. So the red warmer tones means we're going down versus cool tones we're going up. Now, zooming in a little bit more to um, ecological sites, terrestrial ecological units, down here in the Kaibab National Forest. This is within pastures, and we find something very interesting. Again, correlation from 1984, cool tones were going up, warm tones were going down. What's happening here on this soil type? I don't know, but here's the production profile. Down and then it levels off. So you can find some really interesting things. You ask the question, well, what's going on? And uh, this provides a, a long-term data set for us to begin to ask those questions and look at priorities. Uh, Garland Prairie, yeah, same thing, down on the Kaibab. Let's look at some treatment effectiveness results in the data set. So on the X is time, and on the Y is production. These bars here, this is for an allotment, so a big, pretty good sized area. And um, these error bars here represent spatial variability over the allotment. So our trend, we're going up, pretty good sized error bars. What happened in starting in 2005? We had some treatment going on to get some competitive release. And our average post-treatment, about 1,100 pounds per acre pre-treatment, 750. Kind of an interesting case. Um, so to wrap up some of this, we've had some, some good use cases so far. It's very interesting to study these profiles because there's things in there that you don't remember. A lot of us haven't been managing that long. Um, so ranch land in the southwest, a lot of Forest Service regions now I'm beginning to work with, and we're looking at especially drought and wildfire recovery and what that means for maybe some restoration efforts. We've also had some contact with the wild horse and borough folks, especially in Region 5, which is California, um, looking at uh, some of the wild horse and borough impacts. I think it's a good training for people that haven't been on the ground very long. You need to get them ramped up pretty quick. You can work with them and say, hey, this is where you're going to be working. This is what we've seen over the last 35 years. Show them the squiggly lines, talk to them about it, and they can get up to speed a little quicker because we have a lot of turnover in the agency. Some of you probably do that. <laughs> and finally, as a rangeland health indicator, there's no reason you can't use something like this to update you know, your production values across those ESDs. It's more contemporary because we're including what has been happening you know, pretty recently. We had a workshop scheduled January 28th. It was virtual, and of course, that didn't happen because of the shutdown. But in the next two months, we'll be, we'll be rolling out another one where we're going to be interacting, looking at uh, different areas, talking with folks. And we also have a workshop, oh, I don't know, maybe tomorrow or the next day, 
You can find it in the bulletin here. We're going to unpack this a lot more. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.